Well, friends, when I say the word emotions, what comes to your mind? Um, For some of you, you think, wow, emotions. I have had to work hard to rein in and to control my emotions. Because in my case, my emotions can tend to overwhelm me. For others of you, you hear the word emotions and you don't think much about it because you don't tend to feel deep emotions and you don't tend to express outwardly deep emotions. Then there are people in between. Um, What do we mean by emotions? Well, when we think of our souls or our hearts, the inner part of us, we usually break it down to these components. We have a mind, an intellect, a rational faculty by which we think and conceive ideas. We have a will, our volitional faculty by which we make decisions. We have a mind, a will, and then we think of our emotions, our affections, our feelings. Well, what are those emotions? One Southern theologian Robert Dabney said that emotions are the temperature of the soul. Another seasoned pastor said emotions are the felt sensibilities of the soul. More than just our thoughts. But emotions are very much tied to our thinking. Because it tends to be that whatever we are thinking translates into our feelings. Whatever you think about a person or a circumstance or a situation tends to dictate what you then feel about that person's situation or circumstance. Now, when the human race fell into sin, on the backs of our first parents, Adam and Eve, every part of us was affected by the fall. Our minds were darkened, our wills were perverted, and our emotions were corrupted. Sometimes we love what we ought not to love, but even hate, and sometimes we hate what we ought to love. Our emotions are all messed up. Sometimes our emotions are corrupted in the sense that our emotions come to control us so that they override our rational faculty and and we become led by our feelings. At other times, our emotions are corrupted in that they are constricted and even cauterize so that we don't feel what we ought to feel. We're all affected by sin and the fall in our emotions. All of our emotions have been corrupted, some in the direction of controlling emotions, some in the other direction of constricted emotions so that we don't feel enough and we don't express enough emotions. Now, here's the good news. In Jesus Christ, we have been made new creations. And Jesus Christ is renewing us, and he's renewing every part of us. He's renewing our minds, our thinking. He's renewing our wills, and he is at work renewing our emotions. And if we ask, where do we look to get our emotions right? Where do we look to feel rightly in accord with what is good, true, and right? The answer, as it so often is, as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our perfect pattern for life, and he is our perfect pattern when it comes to our emotional lives. And the passage we turn to this morning allows us to get a window into Jesus, and in particular, his emotions, as we see him experiencing one of the most intense experiences of his life, 
the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, last week we learned that Jesus predicted that he would, that all 11 of his remaining disciples would fall away. He quoted authoritatively Zechariah 13, 7 from the Old Testament. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Remember how Peter took exception to that. Peter said, Lord, the rest may, but, but not I. I will not abandon you, Lord. I will not leave you. And that inclined Jesus to kind of double down and make a more specific prediction aimed particularly at Peter. Peter, not only will you betray me and desert me, but you will deny me three times. Well, Peter still dug in his heels. It got apparently kind of argumentative. No, Lord, even if I have to die for you, I'm willing to pay the ultimate price. And the lesson we took away from that One of the main lessons is that Peter and the other disciples did not know their own hearts very well, did they? Nor do we know our hearts as we ought. And we look to the principle, one of the secrets of the Christian life is when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Mark's account, and I ask you to be turning to Mark chapter 14. Mark's account has already brought us to the Mount of Olives after the upper room and the celebration of the Passover. Now, he doesn't include in his gospel what John includes. If you read the gospel of John, you have what we call the upper room discourse where Jesus gave his farewell address, John 13 to 16. And in John 17, he gives his high priestly prayer. Well, for reasons known to Mark and the Holy Spirit, Mark does not include that farewell discourse. For Mark, the next event that he records in the ministry of Jesus is the event we find in verses 32 to 42. Follow as I read Mark 14, beginning at verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. This morning we're going to see that Jesus is the pattern for our emotional lives. And in particular, I'm going to focus on Jesus' desire for human sympathy. And the first point is this. 
just that, Jesus' desire for human sympathy. First thing I want us to see is the propriety of his desire. But look again at verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. He took with him. He, he told um, seven of them to stay here till I pray. Then he took with him Peter, James, and John, began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. The propriety of this desire for human sympathy. Now, when I use the word sympathy, I mean simply what the dictionary means by that word. Here's the dictionary definition. The quality of being affected by the state of another with feelings that correspond. A fellow feeling. A feeling of compassion for another's sufferings. Pity or commiseration. Is it right for one human being to want the sympathy from his fellow human beings? Is it right for one person to want his fellows to feel with him, to feel what he's feeling, to take pity on his sufferings, to enter into his sufferings, his, his griefs, as well as his joys? Well, the biblical answer is yes. First of all, it seems to be yes from the very fact that man was created in God's image. Man is a social being. Because God is a social being. God is one God, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And from all eternity, God, the members of the Trinity, have enjoyed fellowship with one another. And we are made in his image. And so we are social beings who desire companionship. That implies that human sympathy is a, is a good thing. But if it's implied by that, it's even more explicit when we see the reason why God created the woman, first he makes the man, and the man is all alone. And then Genesis 2.18 tells us, after God says everything in the creation is good, 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 very good, the first thing God says is not good, and you all know it, it is not good that the man should be alone. Therefore, I will make him a helper suitable or answering to him. And by the way, it's not helpmate. We get that because it's help meet, because the King James and Elizabethan English, meet means answering to or corresponding to. So you can say help meet, but help mate is not really, you know, the, the, the right thing. But anyway, now I've heard commentators say that she was to be his helper primarily to help him do the work that he was called to do in the garden. And we can't deny that. He was given work to do, tend the garden, etc., have dominion. And she was to be his helper in that work. But I don't think we can deny the fact that the woman's creation was also the answer to the man's loneliness. He was alone. He was experiencing loneliness. And God made the woman to meet his need for companionship. So, and the most intimate of that, of course, is in marriage. Now, the fact that human social interaction is to include sympathy and compassion, I think, is plain from several facts. First of all, we have the capacity to enter into the feelings of others. We have the capacity to show sympathy and compassion with others, to enter into their hurts and griefs and to enter into their joys. But further, in the new humanity in Jesus Christ, we are commanded to show sympathy and compassion. Listen to the Bible in Colossians 3.17. Put on a heart of compassion toward one another. First 
Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another with these words. Romans 12.15, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. 1 Corinthians 12.26, and if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So sympathy, compassion, is something commanded to be shown. It is right to show it. It is right to desire it and expect it from our fellows, at least from fellow believers. But now consider the presence of this desire in Jesus. Did Jesus desire sympathy from his friends? I think the answer from the text is clear. Jesus brought his disciples into a place named Gethsemane. In Hebrew, that means oil press. It seems to be a grove of olive trees on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And it was probably a place where there was an olive press, where the olives were taken and prepared to be turned into olive oil. It was a place to which Jesus often retreated. John 18, 12 says that Judas knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So he goes a short distance into this olive grove. He tells the seven disciples to sit down until he is prayed. And then he takes three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go further into the grove. Now, why did Jesus choose the three? Well, as you know, this wasn't the only time that Jesus took the three with him. When he raised the daughter of Jairus, he took Peter, James, and John. On the Mount of Transfiguration, only these three were privileged to witness that. We are not told why he chose those three. I think a good speculation is that these men were slated to be leaders in the church, and they especially need to be a witness of the sufferings of Jesus on the cross and, and to understand that this kingdom he was bringing in was not a political kingdom, not a military kingdom. It was a kingdom that involved suffering. And so he takes the three with him, and then we read in verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Matthew's version says, keep watch with me. Now, why did he say that to them? Was it for their benefit? I think it was. He wanted them to witness his suffering so that Peter later on in 1 Peter 5.1 is able to say, I'm a fellow elder and I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, Peter wasn't there at the crucifixion, but he was there to see his agony in the garden. So Jesus takes them with him for their benefit that they might witness what he's going through. But I think it's undeniable that Jesus asked them to watch with him for his benefit as well, that Jesus desired and needed human sympathy. um, Octavius Winslow, who wrote an excellent book in a previous century called The Sympathy of Christ, says this very eloquently. He was alone. The clouds were darkening. The sorrow was swelling. The foe was advancing. The cup was brimming. In that hour, he felt the need of human sympathy. He flung himself upon it. He asked it, watch with me. How touching his exquisite conception of the true, the soothing, and the delicate in real sympathy. 
He asks no cheering words, no visible sign, no interposing action, but simply and only their silent presence. This would relieve the dreariness of the scene, lighten the pressure of his load, and diffuse over his troubled spirit a measure of serenity and repose, to feel that they were near to him, to know that with unslumbering eyes they were keeping solemn vigils, that their affections, their thoughts, and their sympathies were like holy sentinels, like were hovering around him on the spot where he lay prostrate in wrestling prayer. Oh, this, this would be solacing and soothing, and his weary, yearning spirit asked it. Who can describe the power of a loving, gentle heart in the hour of grief and woe? And have we no need of fellow watchers in our sorrow? The loving heart, the speaking eye, the unwearied patience, the silent sympathy, surely it is not weak to feel its want, nor sinful to ask its expression. You see, it appears clear that Jesus desired the presence of these men with him to be a comfort to his human soul. Just their presence, just their silent but alert presence would be a soothing balm to him. And friends, doesn't that meet with an echo in your own heart? In your hour of sorrow, isn't the sympathetic and even sometimes silent presence of your friends a great source of comfort? Not to have to go through it alone, but to have the compassion of friends. Jesus had this desire for human sympathy. What prompted the desire? What inclined him to have that desire? Well, again, verses 34, 3 and 34. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. The word deeply grieved, overwhelmed with sorrow, is the Greek word for sorrow, lupos or lupe, at least lupos, but it has a preposition in front of it, the, the preposition peri. We know peri from perimeter. Basically, Jesus is saying, not only am I grieved, I am surrounded with grief. I am drowning in grief to the point where I think I'm going to die, where I think my pulse is going to cease and life is going to drain from my mortal body. Well, what caused that sorrow? You see, we have to understand that the suffering of Jesus was unique. Never a man suffered as he did. Why was he suffering such agony of soul to the point of death? Was it because of the physical agony he was going to face? It was going to be extreme. He was going to have his back ripped open by 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 bone-studded thongs that just ripped his, his back open to the organs to the point of near death. He would have the cross beam laid on his shoulders and made to carry it on the cross until he stumbled. And then he would be impaled through his wrists and through his feet to wood until he suffocated to death. That was horrific suffering physically. But you know, regular mortal men in history have had to suffer great horrors, and great agonies as well. And they've done it with a sense of, of calm and confidence. I think of men in war. I think of the men who stormed the beaches of Normandy. 
And these guys got out of the pillboxes. Some of them drowned in the surf. And they went into the face of a spray of machine gun fire as their fellows fell to their left or right. And they kept moving forward. Imagine the terror of that, knowing that the Nazis are up there on the hill with machine guns. And we're going to go into the face and into the teeth of that fire. What courage that took on their part. We have had saints who were sentenced to die at the stake, to be tied to a stake, and the fire was to be lit, and they were to be burned to death. And many of them went joyfully to the stake. Are we saying that the Lord Jesus was less than regular sinful mortal men in, in anticipating the agony of the cross? No, because there was something else that caused the deep agony in the soul of Jesus that no one else ever had or ever will experience. What was it that caused the, what was the deepest stroke that pierced him, as one of the hymns says? It was the fact that he who had known eternal fellowship with God his Father, who even during his ministry on the earth, his Father said of him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, who often went into his Father's presence in prayer and communed with him. Now he was going to experience, he had never experienced before, never will have to again, and that is separation from God the Father. That's why I so love that song we sing, God estranged from God. God, the Son, was about to be separated from God the Father. As the Bible says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what caused the grief in the heart of Jesus, that I would have to experience blackened heavens, a silent heaven, alienation and wrath, from the Father whom I have loved and who has loved me from all eternity. That was the suffering that would ring from his breast on the cross, that cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or maybe he said it this way, why have you forsaken me, the Son in whom you are well pleased? And it was that anticipation that in the garden would wrench from him the words, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Because of that, will you remain with me and keep watch with me? Christian, we're reminded in passing that it was for your salvation that Jesus endured that. Every bitter thought, every evil deed was heaped upon him on the cross. And in anticipation of that, he was filled with grief. It was so that we would never have to experience one drop of God's wrath upon us, one nanosecond of separation of our soul from God. Even when your body is separated from your soul in death, you will never be separated in your soul from God because Jesus was willing to be estranged from his Father so that we might not be estranged from God. So Jesus desired human sympathy. But next, notice that Jesus disappointment with human sympathy, the cause of the disappointment. Well, you know, I don't have to read it, but for three times he came looking for sympathy, looking for them to watch with him. And every time he found them sleeping, right? Why were they sleeping? Well, it had been a very busy day. They had celebrated the Passover where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. There he had... Um, given their farewell discourse in the upper room. He's going away from them, but he won't leave them as orphans. That's mysterious to them. The stunning announcement that all of them will 
will betray him, or Judas will betray him. They, they will all f- fall away from him. They see the departure of Judas. He washes the disciples' feet. All of that sad news had a dulling effect on them. In fact, Luke gives us the answer. They were sleeping from sorrow. Why were their eyelids heavy? Because of the sadness that had filled their minds as Jesus is preparing to, to leave them. And he's predicting that they're going to fall away from him. Sad news. And it made their hearts heavy and it made their eyelids heavy. And we can relate to that. If you've ever known a, ser- a, 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 a period of depression in your life, we tend to sleep a lot more when we're depressed, right? You talk to some people, they have no reason to get up in the morning. They're depressed. And so sleep overtakes us when our hearts are heavy. And three times they failed to keep their eyes open and to watch with Jesus. Do you see the pain of his disappointment in the text? Verse 37, second part. Could you not keep watch for one hour? Can you hear him saying that, the the poignancy of that? I'm just asking one hour. One hour of watching with me. Couldn't you just keep awake for one hour? Jesus was disappointed. He was pained. How unreliable were his closest friends. How frail, how weak. Here he is about to face the apex of his soul's agony, and they can't keep their eyes opened. But I want us to note also the patience of Jesus in the disappointment. Jesus was disappointed. He was pained by their failure to be vigilant and afford him any comfort in the midst of his suffering. But you can't miss the gentleness and patience of Jesus in the midst of it. His reproof, if it is a reproof, is a mild one, filled with patient understanding. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know you're my friends. I know your spirit really wants to help me, but because of the infirmity and the weakness of your mortal flesh, body, and mind, I understand that you're weak. Psalm 103 says of God, He understands our frame, that we are but dust. God the Father knows our weakness, and he is compassionate toward our weakness. And here, God the Son is being compassionate toward his failing disciples. Your spirit is willing, I know, but your flesh is weak. And then verse 41 is a bit mysterious. I'll speak to it for a moment. He came the third time and said to them, Are you sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, the first part of that, or where it says, Are you still sleeping and resting, can be as an indicative or an interrogative a question. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? In which case... He may be saying, it is enough. You've slept enough. A rebuke, but a gentle rebuke. But it's also possible that instead of an indicative, an interrogative, it's an imperative. For those of you who have the King James Bible, does it say keep on sleeping in your King James Bible? Sleep on, sleep on. And that's a possibility in the grammar. 
And it's curious to me that many of the commentators favor that interpretation, but the translations don't. Even the New King James doesn't. We can't be dogmatic. Sometimes in the Greek, it's either indicative or imperative. Take your pick, according to context. It could be an imperative, sleep on, in which case some say it's ironical, a further rebuke, just, just keep sleeping. The matter is resolved. Spurgeon doesn't think it's ironic. Spurgeon takes it as keep sleeping. You're going to need more rest for what's coming down. And Jesus always concerned about others. So we can't say for sure what the exact meaning is. But when he says it is enough, it could mean, look, I've appealed to you guys three times and I haven't gotten through. I'm not going to do it again. Or it could mean it is settled. I've resolved the issue without you. I asked for your help. I asked you to stay awake and watch with me. You didn't do it, but that's okay. It's settled. The hour has come, and I'm going forward to fulfill my Father's will. So Jesus in his desire to find sympathy from his closest friends and loyal followers, is disappointed. They didn't come through for him. They failed him. They are weak in his time of need. So we see finally, though, and we can't miss this, Jesus' ultimate dependence on divine support. We have seen that Jesus, in his full humanity, looked for help from his human friends. He desired sympathy in the midst of his soul's agony. He wanted strengthening and encouragement from his friends. Now, it's not that they could have counseled him. It's not like they understood. He just wanted them to be there in a quiet presence. Remember Job's friends? When they heard that Job was suffering so horrifically, we read in Job 2.13, they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him for they saw that his pain was very great. As long as they sat there silent, they did well. When they opened their mouths, then they got into trouble and started theologizing wrongly, right? But for seven days, they, they were just there to sympathize with their suffering friend. And um, that's what Jesus wanted. So they didn't offer that help. They slept from sorrow, but help was to be had anyway. You see, when man fails, God does not. And so we find the Son of God getting the help and support he needs from his Father in heaven. First of all, look at what I'm calling the propriety of this dependence on God. Where does our ultimate dependence need to be? Psalm 121 says it very well. When it says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Your friends may fall asleep and not be there for you. God never slumbers nor sleeps. And throughout God's word, we are told that it is right for believers to look for help from their fellow believers, but we always need to look and ultimately need to look to the Lord our God. Men will often fail us, 
but God will not. And here are some other passages from the Psalms which point to that. In Psalm 60, verses 9 to 12, we read, Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? O give help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversary. Sometimes the help of man is empty, it's vain, but not the help of God. And then a beautiful passage in Psalm 27, especially maybe the life verse of of certain orphans. Psalm 27, verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Listen to this. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. That was the experience I read about this morning at the outset of the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. He needs the support of his friends. And what does he say? All deserted me. No one stood with me, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. When his friends abandoned him and were no source of help, the Lord was there to strengthen him and deliver him out of death on that occasion, and as I said, in his second imprisonment, would deliver him through death into his everlasting kingdom. David says in Psalm 18, and uses the language in other places, the Lord is my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies." And so you see Jesus' dependence on God ultimately when human help failed him. It's expressed in his prayer. The prayer of Jesus expresses that his ultimate dependence was not on his fellow disciples, but was on God. He calls God Abba, Father, an intimate term. And he says, all things are possible for you. And he honestly pleads in his human will to be delivered from death. But how does he resolve it? Yet not what I will, but what you will. What does that bespeak? Absolute trust in the wisdom and goodness of his God. God, you know what you're doing. You know in appointing me to go to this cross that you are wise and good. And I want your will and to subordinate my human will to your will. And so we see there his dependence and trust in God, his Father. And we also see the peace and the power that results from that dependence. You see, at the end of the passage, his disciples didn't help him. But in the end, he says, it is enough. It is settled. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. There's a calm resolution there. The loud crying and tears are finished. The answer has come. You need to face the hour. 
You need to drink the cup down to its dregs. The cup of suffering on which you have sipped throughout your ministry, now you need to drink it down to its very dregs. The hour has come. I need to go to the cross. It is settled. And you see the peace and the power that comes not from his disciples, but from heaven. He didn't get help from his friends, but God sent down help from heaven. And he was strengthened to follow his course to the end. Well, with that exposition, what should it all mean to us? Let me make some applications to us. And by the way, this is such a rich passage. I I aim not to bring just one sermon. I really want to bring at least one more on this passage because there are so many rich truths here. Well, let's take it home to ourselves. First of all, understand more deeply and fully Jesus Christ's likeness to you and his identification with you in your humanity. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We see the deity of Jesus and we honor and reverence him. But here we see the humanity of Jesus. In particular, we see that Jesus wanted human sympathy, like you do. He shares in our humanity. He identifies with us in our humanity. Therefore, let's do what the next verse says. If we have a high priest, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, or positively, we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Therefore, the next verse says, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. This should make Jesus more approachable to you in your own suffering. Is he holy God who demands reverence and worship? Absolutely. But is he fully man who can sympathize with us in our griefs, in our sorrow, and in our desire for human sympathy? This should make Jesus more approachable to you when you see him here in his humanity. He is not a distant, cold savior. He is one who wants to draw near to you and be, as God is the God of all comfort to you and the Father of mercies. But thirdly, see the rightness of your desire for the sympathy and compassion and help of your fellow Christians. Jesus could say, could you not watch with me for one hour? That desire sanctifies forever and dignifies that same desire within us. It is not wrong to want your fellows, especially your fellow believers, to come alongside you with sympathy. Jesus wanted that in his humanity, and we should desire it as well. Now, let me say a couple things in that regard. It is right for you to desire sympathy and compassion from your fellows, especially, well, first of all, let me say, especially from your fellow believers. Don't expect too much from the world, right? Jesus said, the world hated me. People who don't know God, don't love God, but hate God. They, they hated me, and they're going to hate you. John, his apostle, picked up on that in his epistle and said, marvel not if the world hates you. The world of sinners is no friend of grace to lead us unto God. Don't expect a lot of sympathy from people in the world. Although, it maybe is our experience that by common grace, you may have 
found some non-Christians more sympathetic than some Christians, right? That's an indictment of us. That shouldn't be. But sometimes by common grace, even non-Christians are more compassionate, sympathetic than some Christians who are more cold-hearted than they ought to be. But generally, don't look for that sympathy from the world. Look for it from your brothers and sisters. And then let me say that some people have been so burned and hurt in relationships that the tendency is to seal themselves off in cynical self-protection. Brothers and sisters, this is not wise or healthy. You've been hurt by relationships. And as a result, you recoil and say, I'm not going to trust anybody else anymore. I'm not going to give my heart to anyone else anymore because I've been hurt. And you retreat into a life of isolation and insulation. That is not good. Now, do you need to be discerning as to those to whom you share your heart? Yes, be discerning. Jesus was. He didn't trust in everybody and reveal himself to everybody equally. But God calls us not to be independent of each other, but interdependent. 1 Corinthians 12 says, the eye can't say, hey, or the ear can't say, no, it's the eye. I don't, I don't need the, the hand. You know, the members of the body can't say, I don't need the other members. I'm a self-contained unit. No, each of the members of the body needs the other members. We are to be in the body of Christ, not independent, but interdependent. We need one another. And if you've been burned and hurt, fight against the desire or the, the inclination to be cynical and isolate yourself and work to rebuild trust because there are trustworthy people. And you need to begin to open your heart cautiously to rebuild trust in brothers and sisters. But next, I have to say that expect that when you look to fellow Christians for support, at times you will be disappointed. That was true of Jesus. Couldn't you watch with me for just an hour? Three times. Sleeping. Sleeping. The sleep of sorrow. Jesus was disappointed. Paul was disappointed. At my first defense, no one supported me, but they all deserted me. That's going to happen to us. We're going to be disappointed at times. People will, will let us down. They won't be there for us in our hour of need. Don't grow bitter. Don't harden into an aloof, cynical person who therefore doesn't trust anybody anymore. But rather, next application Use those disappointments as an occasion to draw near to God. Rather than stewing in your own hurt and saying, I'll never look to people again to help or comfort or, 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 or for sympathy, I'll never trust anybody ever again, rather draw near to him who will never leave you, never forsake you, never fail you without giving you the compassion that he knows you need. You see, sometimes we look too much to other people to meet the needs that only God can meet. And sometimes God will withhold that human sympathy if you're looking too much to man to meet that need. And he won't give it to you because he's a jealous God who will not give his glory to another. And he wants you to come to him as the God of all cars. It's not wrong to look for human sympathy, but sometimes we look so much to horizontally for the sympathy of others, that we're not looking to him who ultimately is the one 
to whom we need to go for that sympathy and compassion. So sometimes God will withhold that human encouragement because he wants to drive us to himself. So we'll be able to say with Paul, yeah, they all deserted me, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. He wants to prove to you that he is the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. And when the Lord is your rock and refuge and stronghold and high tower, those things that David talks about, it frees you then from an over-dependence on people and their sympathy. You won't be craving it. You'll be desiring it. But your basic contentment will come. My comfort comes from God. He stood with me. He strengthened me. He settled me. And then sympathy from your friends becomes a bonus, a blessing that you welcome, but not something that you crave and desperately need. And then, finally, to believers, let us purpose to be better friends to each other than the disciples were to Jesus on this occasion. Our brothers and sisters are going through times of struggle and trial and heartache. Um, We are called to show compassion. We are called to come alongside them. Let's do better than the disciples. Although, if we were the disciples, we would have fallen asleep as well. We're no better than they But it is a reminder to us that when our friends are in an hour of need and sorrow and grief, we need to be there for them. Just to be there. Just a silent, supportive presence. Now, it's interesting that there is a gift of mercy in the Bible, right? It's one of the gifts. Some of you have that gift and how precious that is. But just because there's a gift of mercy given to some, that doesn't allow me to say, well, it's not my gift. I could be hard-hearted and hard and leave it for the merciful person to comfort. I don't have that gift. No, no, no. Though some people have gifts or strengths in that area, we're all called to be merciful. It's just like you can't say, well, I'm not called to be a teacher. Therefore, I shouldn't teach my children. No, the Bible says bring up your children in the admonition or instruction of the Lord. You got to teach your kids, even though you may not have the gift of teaching. And we're all called to be merciful, compassionate, even though there are some who have the gift of mercy, we need to learn from them how better to show mercy, just like there's a gift of faith. Well, there's a gift of faith. I don't have the gift of faith. Well, you all have saving faith, and we need to learn from those who are strong in faith to be stronger in faith. So though there's a gift of mercy, and some of you have it, and it's very precious and needful, all of us are called to be merciful to one another, to try to enter in and feel with what our brothers are feeling and sisters, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And then finally, if you are here and you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you, I want you to get a clear picture of Jesus here from this passage. The one who so desired sympathy to be shown to him is the one who ultimately is the sympathetic, compassionate savior of others. Do you think he who wanted the comfort of his fellows will refuse you if you come in your need and you say, Lord, I'm affected with guilt. I know I've done wrong. I know, I know I've sinned against God. I'm afraid to die. I know there's a judgment coming. I know that it will not go well with me in that judgment. Lord, will you show compassion to me? Will you be merciful to me? The Lord is a, 
an able and willing Savior. He stands with open arms saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, burdened with sin, burdened with guilt, burdened with the bad habits that you don't want to keep doing. And he says, come to me and you will find rest to your souls. So if you're an unbeliever outside of Jesus Christ, know that he is the ultimate compassionate one, sympathetic one. and He will welcome you, receive you. He will forgive you. He will send his spirit to live within you. He will change you. He is the friend above all others. We're going to pray and then sing as a final hymn from the hymnal 186. Our Lord Jesus, thank you again for agonizing in the garden. We know that it was my sin, our sin, the anticipation of becoming sin for us who are your people that produced that great agony of soul. Thank you for enduring that. Thank you for enduring the wrath of the Father so that we will never taste one drop of that wrath, but only know the eternal smile of a perfectly holy God. Father, we thank you, and Jesus, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.